Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome to the show, Dressed listeners. Today, we continue on with our conversation with Anna Jackson, head of the Asian Department at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and also the curator behind the exhibition, Kimono, Kyoto to Catwalk. And this is part two of our two-part episode with Anna. So if you have not heard that first episode, you probably want to go back and check it out first before you listen to this one. Yeah, and you might remember from last week's episode that Anna specializes not only in Japanese dress and fashion, but also that cultural exchange between Japan and Europe. And I've always been fascinated, April, you know this, by this very topic, especially as it relates to the 19th century, because the 19th century is when Japan opens its borders to foreign trade for the first time in the 1850s after like hundreds of years. And all of these Japanese wares flooded into Europe and America, and they just had this incredibly profound influence on art and fashion designers alike. And this exchange went both ways because while the Japanese kimono, for instance, became fashionable at-home wear for Western ladies during the late 19th century, there were women of the Japanese ruling elite who also adopted the bustle gown of Western silhouettes. And what I did not know, April, was just how much further back, so well before the 19th century, this cross-cultural exchange went between Japan and Europe. And Anna is back today to tell us all about it. Anna, thank you for joining us again. Anna, welcome back to Dressed. Thank you. Nice to be back. Last week, we discussed the first section of the exhibition, which relates to the history and cultural significance of the kimono in Japan. But today, we're really going to look at its influence globally and its interaction um, with foreign countries, both in Japan and abroad. So Japan's trading relationship with Europe actually began in the 17th century, which is surprising when you consider that Japan's ports were closed to foreign trade beginning in the 1600s, and that this lasted until the 1850s. But can you tell us about the exceptional relationship that Japan formed with the Dutch East India Company and how this influenced the Japanese kimono specifically? Well, in fact, Europeans first came to Japan in the 1540s. It was the Portuguese who got there first, followed by the Dutch and the English. Um, And everyone came to trade, really. But the Portuguese also came to spread Christianity. (laughs) And that was tolerated for a while. And then... The shogun really clamped down on Christianity. In the 1630s, the Portuguese were thrown out. I think really they just didn't want someone, they didn't want there to be a higher authority than them. People (laughs) owing allegiance to someone other than them. The English were utterly hopeless. You know, they only lasted 10 years. They kept trying to sell (laughs) the Japanese wool, which wasn't a big seller in Japan. So they didn't last very long. So really, in the end, only left the Dutch. And the Dutch, you know, they were no, you know, they were Protestants. They had no interest in converting anyone to Christianity. They were there purely to make money. Um, so that's why the Dutch East India Company sort of survived in Japan. And they were moved, actually, to this small artificial island in Nagasaki Harbor called Dejima. So Nagasaki is right in the southwest of Japan. So it's quite a long way from Edo. It's a long way from sort of the power base, if you like. And they were 
their, their activities were very sort of confined, but they were very, very carefully uh, watched. And one ship would come in a year, effectively. So for those who were stuck there all the time, it was a really quite boring existence. But it was a quite a window on the world for the Japanese. And of course, quite a lot of interesting things came in and out. So, the, so primarily the Dutch were in, in search of, of copper and silver and uh, gold. They were sort of important deposits, particularly of copper and silver in Japan. But they also became captivated by other things. So they took you know, silks and, and ceramics and lacquer back to Europe. The Dutch were very interested in all the kind of things that they found in Japan. But meanwhile, of course, they brought interesting things to Japan and they brought textiles. And the Japanese you have a real love of textiles, a real appreciation of textile arts, as we were talking about last week. They didn't really necessarily bring textiles from Europe. They brought them from their other trading ports in Asia, the other places they stopped on the way. So particularly from India and from Indonesia. And these, particularly if you think of India, the kind of fabric that we think of as chintz, cotton that's really colourfully decorated and so on. I mean, the Japanese just loved this cloth. They were just fascinated by it. It it didn't come in enormous quantities. It was still pretty expensive. So it was often it was often cut off into small pieces and used for like um, a tobacco pouch uh, or or to wrap objects that you'd use in the tea ceremony. You know, it's quite precious. But um, if you were uh, wealthy enough or lucky enough, you could possibly get a whole um, piece of cloth that you could make it into a garment. So so women wore these uh, sort of kimono made out of these, but mostly it was very, quite often a male kind of fashion. And again, what we were talking about last last week about the sumptuary laws and about interesting linings. So you often find that men's under kimono are made out of this cotton from India. And it would add this kind of rather secretive, flamboyant layer to this otherwise rather restrained ensemble that men uh, were forced to wear. So that, that's sort of quite, quite interesting in itself. And the Japanese loved this cloth so much, but they couldn't get enough of it and they couldn't necessarily afford it. They started to copy it. So this kind of cloth is called sarasa in Japan. And um, so they developed their own style, wa sarasa, wa meaning Japanese. And they just use um, the kind of techniques, technical skills they already had, like stencil dyeing, to create these sort of Indian style uh, fabrics. So quite a lot of it you see depicted in prints and things is probably the kind of chintz-like fabric that was actually made in Japan rather than actually bought from India. And then, of course, the things we think about also, other things like even even the checks and the stripes that are such ubiquitous in Japanese fashion in the Edo period actually originally came from India. And then very occasionally you get something a bit more unusual. And that's where our friend Mr. Yoshida, who I mentioned last week, came in because he gifted uh, to us um, this wonderful kimono that's made out of French brocade. And as far as I can tell from my research, this is the only one I've ever come across, although there may be others out there perhaps. So this is a piece of silk that was woven in Lyon in France in the 1760s, probably a bolt of cloth taken by a silk merchant to Amsterdam to, to sell there was bought by a member of the Dutch East India Company and shipped to Japan, probably as a diplomatic gift. And then it got ended up being made into a woman's um, outer kimono in Japan. It's a very, very unusual garment. So we're very lucky to have that in the show. And that's another one of those that we've styled because it's an outer kimono. We've styled that on a mannequin. Yeah. And that is definitely, I was going to mention that because that is one of the most stunning and surprising um, kimonos in in this section of the exhibition. Um, But also that black and white checkerboard patterned kimono that's edged with almost like a cashmere shawl motif. So those Indian botas and red, that's such a wonderful combination and so unexpected. That's really a lovely piece of fabric. You should mention that because my uh, I work in the Asian department at the BNA. And so I have a colleague, um, Avalon Fotheringham, who's our expert on Indian um, 
uh, textiles, and she actually identified quite a lot of the, uh, the textiles that you see in, in Japanese prints for me. So she was really excited that this garment was coming because she'd seen it a lot like me. She'd just only ever seen it in an illustration. So um, when it was being unpacked to be installed, I, I gave her a call and she came to look at it. It was really interesting her talking to the Japanese couriers because she was able to spot things in the, in the, in the cloth and talk about its significance in a way that the Japanese couriers, Japanese lenders didn't know either. So it's a really, so even today there was a wonderful, you know, recently there was a wonderful bit of cross-cultural exchange between us all. <laughs> and, you know, I've read a lot about the Japanese wares that flooded Europe after the reopening of the ports to foreign trade in the 50s, but I really had no idea that the exportation of Japanese kimono and other articles of dress actually began as far back as the 17th century. And I'm hoping you can tell us about the European vogue for quote unquote Indian gowns and just what they have to do with Japan, because I think this may surprise more than a few of our listeners. It certainly surprised me. <laughs> yeah, well, I think um, that is it's a surprise for our visitors. That's what you want to do is, you, is you, when you're in the exhibition and you, you, you've gone through the bit that's the Edda period, you walk into the next room and the first thing you see is a full size European painting of a woman wearing what is obviously a kimono. Um, and that was painted in, in the 1670s. So the Dutch in Japan, as I mentioned, they were in this little island, Dejima. But once a year, um, the chief officials from the Dutch East India Company uh, made their way to um, Edo to meet the shogun, to thank him for the continuation of trade. And they would give gifts. They would often give fabrics, indeed. And they got gifts back. And they got given kimono. And other feudal lords would also give them kimono. And I suspect they probably bought a few themselves as well. Um, and they took these, you know, back to Europe, back to the Netherlands, where they caused a complete a stir. I mean, there was a, a tradition of wearing long, loose gowns for men in Europe. So if you were to show that you were a man of letters, you know, you'd wear a, a long, loose gown while you're sitting in your library. And they were often, they were usually made to be dark colors, blacks or browns perhaps lined with fur for warmth, but they can't really be thought of as fashion, particularly. And suddenly, you've got the arrival of these incredibly beautiful, colourful uh, silk garments, and kind of everybody wants one. So the Dutch realised they were, you know, onto a winner here, commercially, when they always are very commercially minded, of course. Um, so they got the Japanese to make kimono-like garments for them, but they changed them slightly. So the sleeves were slightly adapted. So they were more tubular, so they didn't kind of hang so long. Um, the more tubular sleeves, and also quite heavily padded. It's, it's obviously pretty cold in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly in Holland, I imagine, in the Netherlands. So they'd use this kind of heavy padding that you do see on winter garments in Japan, but you also see them on sleeping coverlets in Japan as well. So they would, they'd be heavily padded. But the thing about silk wadding, unlike fur, is it's really light. So these things are not heavy to wear. So these things went back again, sort of exported. And the Japanese kept very, very careful records of all the kind of garments that were put on, on ships, shipped back uh, to Holland. Um, and most, there's not many of these that actually uh, survive. And most of them, as you might imagine, are in the Netherlands. But while we were doing the research for the exhibition, we actually found one in Britain, which is really exciting, which is actually in Scotland. And it's New Hales House, which is just outside Edinburgh. And it was taken over relatively recently by the National Trust of Scotland. And they discovered, you know, amongst the things that were in this house, this garment. And they had done quite a bit of research themselves and figured out what it was exactly. 
So they contacted me just to see what else I could tell them. And I, it was just one of those wonderful moments where you open an email from somebody you've never heard of. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, so it was really, really exciting. And when I told my colleagues in Japan who were doing some research on these comments, I'd found one in Britain. They were kind of really suspicious. They thought, you know, I can't be right. And they were so excited. In fact, my colleague in Tokyo, um, Dr. Yama, she came all the way to Edinburgh to see it, you know, because it was so exciting to find this. So that was a lovely find. And they were called, um, we tend to think of these gums, they're often called Japonse Rock in the Netherlands, Japanese robe. But in Britain, we call them nightgowns. Uh, not that you wore them in bed, but you'd wear them around the home. You know, they weren't supposed to go out in them. It was considered a bit, you know, a bit risque to walk in the streets in one, though apparently people did. But the idea was you'd wore it informally at home. So it's perfectly acceptable to receive guests while wearing one and, to, of course, to have your portrait painted because it really showed that you were not only uh, sort of wealthy enough to buy one, but you, you know, you. You had this sort of, you were at the cutting edge of style, if you like. Um, but of course, the Japanese could no way could keep um, up the supply of these things. They just couldn't make that many of them. So um, the Dutch turned, first of all, to India. And so artisans on the Coromandel Coast of, of India who make the chips, effectively, they, they made robes in this style. And then they were copied at home because, you know, the construction of them was very, very relatively straightforward. So it's quite easy for local tailors uh, to make these kind of garments. So we have them in, um, we have ones in one of the exhibitions that's made in London, it's from Spitalfield Silk. And they were, they were made in America as well. Um, you often see portraits of sort of uh, notable people in, in, in America wearing them as well. And they're known as India gowns. There was a lot of confusion. People didn't know whether things came from India or Japan or China, you know, it was just somewhere out there. Right. So you get that kind of... Yeah, confusion anyway. But the thing was, they were sold in, certainly in Britain, they were sold in what are known as India shops. And what that meant was that these were the companies who traded with the East India companies. Oh. So there's a difference between the East Indies and the West Indies. So obviously, you know, when, when Columbus set sail and found, you know, found America, he was looking <laughs> for, for a passage to India. <laughs> Yes. It just went the wrong way. So that's why you get that. They're the West Indies. That's why they're called the West Indies. But it was the East Indies. So it was the Dutch East India Company. Of course, there was the English East India Company as well, the Swedish East India Company, the French. So these are the India companies, if you like, trading in all parts of Asia. So the shops where these things they brought back were for sale were always known as India shops. So that's why they tend to be known as India gowns, even though they might well be Japanese in origin or even indeed be made more locally out of a local fabric or another kind of imported fabric. So we already know then that the Japanese were influencing European fashion um, prior to the 1850s. But in the 1850s, the United States actually forced Japan to open its ports to trade. And the Edo period ends a short time later when Emperor Meiji ascends to the throne in 1867. So facing the threat of colonization, Meiji and the Japanese government really began to focus on establishing Japan as this modern industrialized state. You know, they really start asserting their civility, but also their autonomy. And this is no more exhibited than in the implementation of Western styles of dress into Japanese wardrobes. Can you discuss the different ways that both Japanese men and women responded to the influence? of your American styles of dress because it's not necessarily the same and it also of course depends on class yeah well you're right absolutely Japan was very worried about being colonized it could see what had happened or defeated in war it could see what had happened to its mighty neighbor China in what, what we call the sort of opium war so they, the Japanese decided that the only way that they were really going to stand up to the might 
of Western powers like America and, and the European powers was to be a bit more like the West and to modernize along Western lines. Um, so certainly it was led by the new emperor, the Emperor Meiji, and it was actually the, the people, men of the court who, who up to this point, before the Meiji period, when the, the emperor had just been a figurehead and had no power at all, they were very isolated in in Kyoto, and they wore garments that sort of harked back to to sort of the ninth and tenth century. Suddenly, they abandoned their sort of wide sleeve robes and their lacquered caps and started to adopt more sort of military style of of, of Western dress. And that's often how the Emperor Meiji is is depicted and, and seen in, in paintings and photographs. So it became a sort of point that if you were uh, you know wanted to show that you were a man of the new order, you would adopt. Uh, Western clothing, Western styles of clothing. Um, but even perhaps if you were living, so of course not everybody adopted Western clothing at once. Even, you know, even if you were living perhaps in a more rural area, you might find that although a man would have sort of one Western style suit. And they're actually in Japan, even today, the suit is known as Seboro, which comes from Savile Row, which is where suits are famously made in London. But women on the whole, didn't. There was this real sort of divide as, as Japan became more sort of westernized. You got this division of place and gender. So before, if you think of sort of, you know, these merchant classes, people would have their, their shop premises, like at the front of their home. And so often women were very much involved in the business as well. Whereas then you got this sort of division where men started to go out to work, where they would sit at a Western-style desk with a Western-style chair. So somehow wearing a suit seemed more appropriate, but changing to kimono when they got back home. Whereas women, who tended to be less in the public sphere, would, would carry on wearing kimono. But there was certainly a point in the 1880s, which is probably the high point of Westernization in Japan, when you do see certainly women of the elite uh, starting to wear Western-style sort of dresses like bustled dresses. So you get this real sort of difference. I mean, it must be completely bizarre to wear a structured garment like that when you're used to wearing a kimono. But certainly most women carried on wearing kimono. And in the 1890s, there was a sort of reaction against westernization. It's like it had gone too far and Japan became sort of more keen to sort of assert its own cultural heritage. And somehow women were at the sort of forefront and being the sort of guardians, if you like, of this, these kind of sort of um, Japanese cultural values. And, and very much the woman in, in her kimono sort of epitomized this. And that was actually my next question, because you write that the kimono really took on, um, you know, in the face of westernization, the kimono really takes on this increasingly symbolic meaning. So why is, was it especially significant within the context of Japan's growing global presence? You have talked about it a little bit, but... I think it's it, you get it certainly more when you get into the 20th century and sort of post-war period. But it it was sort of it's interesting how dress really, you know, it, you know how dress is, is such a valuable marker of who you are and what your identity is. So whereas men, you could say, well, like, you know, they're, they're identified with this new order. Women were seen as this sort of preserving sort of of. of traditional Japanese cultures, traditional techniques and so on. And so the, the kimono was the obvious and most visible way in, in, in which that was done. And there was sort of um, ideology of sort of the good wife and mother. Um, and that was very much sort of a woman in, in her sort of more demure kimono, whereas men were there in their in their suits or their uniforms when they went off to fight and so on. So it's quite interesting how 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 certain clothing styles can sort of somehow symbolize that kind of cultural heritage. It doesn't just happen in Japan, of course, but it's somehow always associated with, with women, uh, that women are somehow traditional, whereas men are active and moving forward, you know. So it's that kind of way of sort of perceiving uh, the differences between genders, which you, you, you also see, I think, you see it in the West at the same time as you get the increasing idea about 
Asia being seen as feminine, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the idea of the woman in her kimono, because they were, I mean, the people who, the Westerners who, who sort of came to Japan at that stage in increasing numbers and were really excited to see this somehow newly revealed country and so on, they used to get really annoyed if they saw people wearing, particularly women, wearing Western clothing, because somehow that would sort of shatter their romantic illusions of this country. And, um, you know, somehow it was that sort of idea of this, of, of you know, where was they you know, the, the Europeans could certainly admire Japanese culture and be inspired by it themselves. Woe and behold, the Japanese actually got inspired by the West. You know, that was really not done to be done. You know, they had to remain pure and untainted. <laughs> and But it was that idea about the West being very masculine and rational, mm-hmm. whereas Japan was seen as very feminine and irrational um, and sort of more attached to nature and things. So it seems, it seems to be women, the woman in the kimono really sort of almost epitomized that sort of vision of Japan, if you like. And of course, the Japanese understood this, and they sort of you know, decorated lots of export teapots with women wearing kimono because they understood that's what people liked, you know. So, yeah, and you do write about a lot about how the Japanese had a lot of agency and how they interacted with the West, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in my next question. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Euro-American technologies that were imported into Japan. How did those both help to revolutionize and democratize fashion in Japan? Because there was a lot of really significant changes to Japanese textile and dress production. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um what was interesting was that the Japanese textile industry was one of the first to um, modernize in Japan. And it was partly because in Kyoto, the imperial family, when, they, when the emperors came back, they, the imperial family moved from Kyoto, where it always lived, up to Edo. So somehow the Kyoto lost uh, an important patron there. And they were no longer sort of samurai, very rich sort of buying kimono. So it looked like you know, the kimono industry or the, the textile industry might flounder. But in fact, it embraced the new rather than rejecting it. And there was a very enterprising mayor of Kyoto sent off a load of artisans to Europe. And this is just at the moment of things like the big international exhibitions. Obviously, there was the one in Philadelphia, very famously, in 1876. Uh, but the ones in Europe as well. And they would, they would travel there and they would find out the latest things about the latest weaving technologies, the latest dyes. So just at the point where chemical dyes, aniline dyes, were being introduced into the rest of the world. The Japanese weren't far behind in actually um, taking these on board. But what was interesting, I suppose, is that they took all these new techniques back to Japan, not to make Western clothes, but to make kimono, make Japanese clothes. And the introduction of these dyes really expanded the color palette for garments, and the colors are quite sort of different from the vegetable dyes, much sort of brighter, more vibrant, I suppose we'd think. And also new weaving techniques, like the introduction of the jacquard loom, sort of really speeded up weaving. So what you found is that silk could be woven in much larger quantities at a much cheaper price than ever before. So people were able to, more more people were able to afford it. And with the end of the Edo period, you also got the end of the sumptuary laws. So there were no rules about who could actually wear silk. So suddenly, you know, it became much more available to far more people. So it did kind of democratize uh, fashion, as you said, in that way. At the turn of the century, right, you start seeing the introduction of department stores, kind of that mass consumer culture, the mason kimono. Yeah, so the um, department stores are very much influenced by the ones in the West. The kimono stores that we talked a little bit about last week that uh, sort of changed, they, they transformed themselves into modern department stores. Again, interestingly, it was the Echigoya that led the way. And in 1904, they changed to a more like a modern department store. They changed their name to Mitsukoshi, which is the name they have now. But even at the 
big department stores that still exist in Japan, as well as Mitsukoshi, things like Daimaru, Takashimaya, Matsuya, they, they all were originally kimono stores. And suddenly they, they, they developed the ways of displaying things like in, in glass top cases and things, you know, again, inspired by what they'd seen in the West. And Mitsukoshi had its own design department and it produced wonderful posters and advertising and an in-house magazine for frequent shoppers and things. So, so again, they were sort of just as revolutionary as it, and, and good at their marketing as they'd been in the 17th century. And one of the vital moments was that about not having to take your shoes off. Right. Because as you probably know, whenever you go into a Japanese establishment, a Japanese home, there's a place you leave your shoes and you step up onto the kind of wooden platform. And this was the way, this is certainly what you did when you went to a kimono stop. So you you leave your shoes and step up into the shop. So the moment, I think it was in the 20s, that suddenly um, people didn't have to do that. They'd keep their shoes on. I mean, that really changed the way <laughs> you could just walk off on the street. And it was much, right. much more like a, a leisure activity, like shopping now. You know, what we think it was a window shopping. You wouldn't, you wouldn't just go to the store and in the same way the department stores worked everywhere else in the world. You didn't just go to the store and just buy something. You went just to have a look. It was like part of the sort of leisure of the city, you know, you, the cafe culture, going to the cinemas and department stores were very much at the heart of that. And they they would sort of promote that and they would have um, certainly promoting the latest sort of Western fashions and the latest kimono fashions. They'd have sort of kimono fashion competitions. They'd have um, special sort of displays of these kimono. And the kimono you mentioned, the mason, that's very, very sort of interesting because that's a kind of fabric that we associate not with Kyoto where most sort of production was based, most community production was based, but in, in sort of small towns um, around Tokyo. I mean, silk production, as well as very sort of high quality silk production, there's always a sort of waste, if you like, the kind of silk that's, that's, that's left when you've, you've unfurled the cocoon or there's a deformed cocoon. So traditionally, this kind of uh, silk would be, you make a sort of quite fat cloth. Um, suddenly, this kind of silk was combined with, with mechanically spun silk to make a fabric that was much more was cheaper and more durable and hard wearing but we still have that gorgeous luster of silk and it has a sort of look and feel of, of taffeta silk and it would be patterned by using stencils to dye the warps or the wets so the warps would be spread out and you do stencils for all the different colors and this sounds like a very and then it would be woven together for the pattern so it sounds like a very laborious way of working but i have actually seen it being done and it, they do it incredibly quickly so it's a bit like it's not mass production but it's because it's stencils it's batch production so you can make more lots and lots of cloth that's got the same kind of pattern it's lots and lots of kimono that look the same so people would go to these department stores and whereas in the past you would either go to the kimono store the kimono merchant and buy a piece of quite simple cloth like a piece of cotton or something and make it into kimono in your own home or if you were wealthy you'd have something specially commissioned there was kind of nothing in between for the first time in the 1920s and 30s you could go to a shop go to a department store and buy a colorfully patterned kimono off the peg and you still got the same kind of um, advertising, like in the Edo period, you know, you'd see pictures of courtesans wearing a lace kimono. Then they, in the in the 1920s and 30s, you'd get famous actresses who would advertise a particular kind of mason. So, so it's incredibly colourful. And in the exhibition, we've created a, our designers have created a, a sort of hexagonal room that's got mirrors above and we've sort of stacked these kimono high this is where we have apart from one put them back on their tea bars so you get this amazing kind of reflection of this amazing sort of color as far as you look so it's quite kaleidoscopic 
Yeah, and the graphics and because of the aniline dyes and like you said, this kind of um, speeding up the production of weaving and dyeing, they're incredible. The graphics on these are incredibly, I mean, they're so vibrant and so beautiful and really, really something to see and really stand in contrast to what you would have seen before, I would say. So it's just trying to show that although the shape, basic shape of kimono didn't change at all, they really are quite different. Right. The evolution of fashion. Fashion has changed. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. We've discussed a little bit the Euro-American influence on Japan, but this was by no means a one-way street. In what ways did Japanese culture and the kimono specifically impact European and American aesthetics and artistic practices in the 19th century? Well, as you mentioned earlier, the, um, there's a sort of great flood of goods. So there's a real fascination for Japan, this newly, newly opened country, if you like. And of course, the Japanese themselves understood that they didn't have any heavy industry to, to export. So if they were going to be uh, successful on the world stage, if they were going to be successful commercially in the world, they had to export their craft products. And that's what people wanted to buy in the West. So, you know, you could just buy a fan or a teapot or whatever. But people could also buy kimono. And what you found at the end of the Edo period with the end of samurai rule, all these sort of um, women who'd worn these quite formal garments, samurai women who'd worn very formal garments, they all went back to their sort of domains. They'd been living in Edo, in the capital, as in the what became Tokyo at that point. So there's all this unused stock. A lot of merchants had a lot of unused stock. So they sold it to often to, you know, um, eager foreigners. So you often get the, the kimono that came with were often the kind of kimono that were worn by samurai women. And it's certainly those you see often depicted in paintings. But certainly it was quite fashionable to wear a kimono. And in, in London particularly you think of Liberty's store, which of course is still there, which would often sort of sell a sell kimono. And it was very much associated with a sort of being quite sort of artistic, you know, it's part of the aesthetic movement, uh, the idea of being quite sort of almost quite bohemian, quite avant-garde. And one of the smallest uh, sort of little things we have in, in the exhibition is a wonderful photograph of Ellen Terry, who was quite a famous 19th yes. century actress. <laughs> and uh, she, she had quite an interesting life because she was married very young to the painter G.F. Watts, um, but left him to move in with her lover, who was E.W. Godwin, who was a, himself a great fan of Japan and, and, and his furniture styles, particularly his wallpaper designs, are very much inspired by Japan. So they collected Japanese prints and they wore kimono around the home. We have a photograph of her in, in a kimono. So not, not to be wearing on the stage, but just wearing at home. So it's this idea that, you know, really did show that you were sort of very art, art, artistic. And um, as I say, we do, you do see paintings, quite a lot of European paintings of women usually models sort of dressed in kimono by the artist, but you do sometimes see identifiable women wearing uh, kimono. And a lovely, another lovely find uh, for the exhibition was a painting of a woman called Elizabeth Smith, who was the wife of a very successful publisher, George Murray Smith. And a very beautiful painting of her um, sitting, sort of sitting in a chair at home. She's got her, her, her undergarment is certainly European, but over the top, she's wearing a kimono. And in fact, one of my, my, my colleagues, the, one of the fashion curators at the VNA, saw this painting in an exhibition in Dublin. Uh, so we sort of tracked it down. It was in a private collection. But what was really interesting was that the present day owner also owns the garment that is depicted in the painting, the kimono. And as far as I know, this is the only known paired survivor. And this garment has sat in a trunk, she said, you know, she discovered it by chance. She inherited all this from her grandmother. And it's in really good condition. So you can really see how bright the dyes are. They're still disposable dyes, but really brightly colored. You compare them to some of the ones that faded. So it's really lovely to have these two 
uh, side by side in the exhibition. But the Japanese, of course, realizing the popularity of these garments, started to make kimono specifically for export. And the kimono that you see being made in Japan for the Japanese, for the domestic market, you still see the kind of, patterning tends to be quite subtle. You often get things patterned just around the hem. It's that kind of a continuation of, of Edo period ikishik, you know, just small little details. But the, the Japanese realized this is not the kind of style that was going to be of interest in the West. So they made export kimono in a very similar style to the big panels of fabric that they would make for export that would, people would hang in their homes in the West. So really beautiful, lustrous satin silks. Uh, embroidered often with sort of things like wisteria and other kinds of flowers, sometimes with ducks and so on. And these were specifically known as kimono for foreigners. And they, would under- they understood, of course, that people in the West didn't understand about tying an obby, these sort of long, wide bit of fabric. So they very handily made Westerners a sash, just a simple sash around your waist that was in the same fabric as the garment. But most interesting, perhaps, they often put extra panels either at the side, in the side scenes, or at the back scenes, like triangular panel in the back scene was one of the ones we have in the V&A collection, which made the kimono drape more like a skirt. So it wasn't so, it wasn't so straight down. It would just, um, you could wear it over petticoats. So it's a really fascinating kind of hybrid kind of, of, of garment. But this was a, a real you know, craze for these kind of garments, um, and we have another one in the in the exhibition that belonged to Emily Grigsby, who was a very famous, very famous American socialite, and she had a wardrobe of cutting edge European uh, fashions, but she also had an export kimono. And what's quite nice about it is our conservatives were preparing it for display. So do you need to realize that the the hem and the lining of this is really torn and really filthy. So I just like to think that Emily really went out and had a good time <laughs> in this outfit because she's obviously just scraped along the floor, spilt things on it. So it looks lovely now. You know, they've done a fine job, my colleagues. But, you know, it was quite interesting to think that this, this kimono really had a life on someone's, you know, an American woman's body. So that was quite fun. And the women were really wearing them as tea gowns, right? Or at home gowns. So like in between... It was still quite, you still had that connotation that it had had earlier of being something you wore informally at home. Mm-hmm. But I think increasingly women would wear it sort of almost like a sort of opera coat. Oh, you know, okay. Something you'd wear for a publication. I think, I'd say, from, especially by the condition of Emily Grigsby's, you know, she did wear it out, I would guess. It was so much a dialogue. I think what we're trying to show in the exhibition that it's not a sort of east-west dichotomy. Right. It's about communication in the same way that the Dutch communicated with Japanese to decide what, what they want, what they needed them to make and so on. It became even more a dynamic relationship in the late 19th and early 20th century where you got Japanese silk merchants coming to the West, figuring out what it was that people here wanted to buy, that shops such as Liberties in London would would correspond with the Japanese and say, you know, this, is a, this seems to be a popular color this year and... Uh, and this kind of thing. And, you know, it was definitely sort of this sort of relationship between Japanese silk merchants and makers, European department stores or retailers and and fashionable consumers who you might demand something in a different color or so on. So Emily Grigsby's kimono is a sort of peachy color, which is something you'd never see in a kimono made in Japan. It's, very, it's a rather unusual color to see in a kimono. But to me, that was responding to the sort of fashion that was in the West. 
Yeah, and many, many fashion designers were greatly influenced by Japan in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Can you talk a little bit about the ways that different European designers, I mean, we have Charles Frederick Worth, Paul Paré, um, you know, so many of those high-end haute couturiers are incorporating Japanese aesthetics, textiles, and even construction techniques into their work. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, certainly you get an interest in sort of Japanese patterns and things like that. But I think what's most radical in the early 20th century is this move away from tightly corseted, intricately constructed garments into a more the idea of sort of loose fabric that drapes the body. So if you think of the shift from, you know, the bustles of the late 19th century, that kind of elaborate sort of S-shape that would be created at the, you know, that was fashionable in the very early 20th century, and you think about sort of the archetypal flapper dress, suddenly you get these really straight lines. And somehow the waist is no longer the kind of fulcrum for the design. It's all about hanging something from the shoulders. And probably you think of someone like Paul Poiret is probably the most famous. He's a person who seemed to have abandoned the court. Yes. <laughs> I don't think he was the first or the, or the only one, obviously. People remember him. And we had this sort of yellow mantle. It was something that would have been worn over another garment in the museum. And it belongs to the Western fashion department in the, in the V&A. So although I knew it well to see it on display, and everything, I was amazed when I went to, to see it, when it, it is actually just two sort of rectangular bits of fabric looped. One goes across one shoulder and meets it on the other hip, and the other one goes on top of it. So it's, it's extraordinary. You know, you'd think it was something that was contemporary, not something that had been created, you know, over 100 years ago. And somebody like Madeleine Viennet, again, very famous for, for her straight cut, none of these sort of ideas about something's being darted or pleated or so on. And the interest in, in big long sleeves, you often get as well, you know, that sort of kimono-like sleeves. We've got a wonderful kimono coat in the exhibition, which we borrowed from the Kyoto Costume Institute, which is by... Fortuny. And effectively, you know, even the fabric is inspired by a known bit of Japanese fabric. So in every respect, it's a kimono. It's got slightly sloping shoulders rather than square shoulders. But if you lay it flat, it just looks like a kimono. Um, so it's a real sort of very strong influence, but also creates something very radical in Western fashion at that time. Yeah, and you really see it all the way from, I would say, the 1880s and 90s with Charles Frederick Worth and then, you know, Poiret in the early 10s, but also people like Jean Paquin. And then especially into the 1920s, you really are still seeing the aesthetic influence of Japan so, so clearly in all of these different garments. It's really incredible to see that trajectory. Yeah, and you see it also in, in a sort of wider interest in, in East Asian culture generally. So we've got a, that is sort of interest in sumptuous surfaces, not just sort of in silks, but in things like lacquer. So we, we've styled in the exhibition, we've styled a couple of the garments, including the V&A, against uh, a lovely lacquer screen by Arlene Gray. And uh, we've got some beautiful Cartier jewels um, that Cartier F. Gray kindly lent us, where you've got sort of the idea of sort of you know, Japanese inspired sort of wisteria, and they've even taken a, an in-row, a sort of a, these segmented boxes that would have been worn by men in the Edo period, and made it into a woman's vanity case, things like that. So, you know, this, this real interest in, in, in East Asian materials and techniques at that time. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, 
that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. So you write that this cultural exchange between Japan and the West, so Europe and America, during this period was, quote, not a case of one directional cultural appropriation, but one of mutual interaction between Japan and the wider world. So it's really a conversation, something that, of course, continues to this very day. Why was this distinction important for you to make with this exhibition? And, you know, for our listeners who might be conflicted or confused, how can you really tell the difference between a cultural conversation and something that is quite clearly appropriation? Yes. Um, I think for it was important that we weren't setting up, as I said, this dichotomy, that the, that the, the story of this kind of trade is much more complex. If you think about what we were speaking about a little while ago about the Indian garments. So that were made for Europe. So what you find is the Dutch East India Company going to India, asking the Indians to make something that looked vaguely Japanese to be exported to the Netherlands. It's quite a complicated system. It's not straightforward. And it's just in the way that the cloth that was tended to be taken to Japan wasn't European. It's not one side against another side. It's a much more complex story than that. And that's what we're trying to show all the way through. Obviously, I'm from the Asian department, so my interest is, is in Japan and showing from the Japanese point of view. But we didn't want ever, to, ever there to be this kind of idea that being really, going back to the idea that Japan has got no fashion, which we're trying to counter, the idea that in the West, everyone was creative. You know, they took something and that Europe was the avant-garde one that got inspired and did something creative, whereas Japan was just copying something. You know, we wanted to show that it, it works both ways and it, and it isn't just that dichotomy. But certainly um, the wearing of kimono by Europeans in the late 19th century was bound up with ideas of, of of imperialism, that idea I was saying earlier about the idea of sort of, you know, feminized Asia, you know, you could admire uh, Japan, certainly, but you, it was, it was, there was certainly this notion that the West was ultimately superior. And of course, when you think about the influence of kimono today and kimono fashions today, um, and people perhaps wanting to wear kimono in the West, there were lots of people who said, is it okay for Westerners to wear kimono now? You know, was it odd to dress up in a kimono? I think... Um, you know, where is that line between appreciation and appropriation? It's a difficult one to draw. It's a very fuzzy one. And of course, it depends the context in which you're reading it, in which you're understanding it. If you've come from a marginalized society that is still discriminated against, then you're likely to take, to, to feel it's much more about appropriation. And to, it's a, it is a very complicated and, and sensitive issue. So I think what we're trying to say in the exhibition and in the book is that the difficulty was saying that every wearing of a kimono or a kimono-inspired garment is 
simply appropriation is that you're, you're stopping to think about what you're saying about kimono. Because what you're saying is that the kimono is this very traditional, revered garment that shouldn't be touched, that shouldn't be altered in any way. It has to sort of stay this pure, sort of untainted, unmessed with thing. And in some ways, by trying to fight against what seems to be a stereotype of Asia, you're actually imposing another stereotype, which is that Asian clothing is unchanging. And you're kind of denying the kimono its very dynamic sartorial history within Japan. And of course, this long, long history of cultural exchange. I mean, that has how fashion works. What's interesting about fashion is that it has always transcended cultural and geographic boundaries. You know, it is very, it is very, very uh, sort of fluid, the way that fashion sweeps back and forth. And it, it, it almost sort of blurs the boundaries between the familiar and, and the foreign. So in the same way that wearing a garment that kind of felt European, but kind of felt a bit alien, you know, you get that wonderful mixture in in the Japonse rock that people were wearing in the 17th century and in things that would be more in the early 20th century. So I think we're just trying to show that there's a sort of, it's, it's something you should be aware of, but there's certainly a much more sort of dynamism and creativity you might think. And also I think the fact that Japan has always had agency in this relationship is very, very important. The fact that, it, you know, the Japanese sold things to the Dutch East India Company. They tolerated the Dutch East India Company. They sold them things. They gave them things. They knew what these markets were. They may not have had no sense of what Europe was, but they understood that they were part of a trading network. And certainly in the 19th and early 20th century, the Japanese were very, very canny about how they engaged with the West and how they sold and how they figured out the marketing and how they figured out what it was that people wanted. You know, and even and of course today, Japan has agency in how it how it presents itself vis-a-vis the rest of the world and how it presents kimono culture. So it's interesting. And when we were met with a lot of the um, kimono makers in the third section of the show, we have a lot about what's happening now in Japan. And we've met a lot of kimono makers. We asked them all, how would they feel about me or any of my colleagues wearing a kimono? Would they see that as something inappropriate or something that was just ugly or, or how would they perceive it? <laughs> and for them, they said, well, yeah, of course, of course, we'd love you to wear our kimono. And indeed, you know, I was very tempted, I have to say, and I did purchase a few for myself, um, which I've, uh, you know, proudly, one of them which I proudly wore at the opening. And for them, they want their industry to survive. They want people to wear kimono. And while they understand that a lot of people in Britain are never going to wear them on a regular basis. They, they want there to be an interest in what they do. They want to, to be involved in the world. They want to sort of show their wares. And they were amazed coming to Britain to find that everyone was so interested in Kimono because quite a lot of them came to the opening of the exhibition and had never been to Britain before. And they stayed and some did workshops and, and demonstrations. And they said it was just so fabulous to meet all these people who, who loved what they did and were fascinated by what they did and wanted to know about their techniques and wanted to be inspired. For them, that was an extraordinarily positive thing. Right. And I mean, like you said, it's really about context and being conscious about who you're buying from. Are you buying a Japanese garment from a Japanese artisan, for instance? And what, you, what are you doing and what are you saying? And exactly. Are you wearing something because you think, gosh, this is a really wonderful, fashionable thing to have in my wardrobe. Yeah. It's different from saying, oh, I'm going to dress up and pretend I'm Japanese. Right. You know, like it's some, you know, put chopsticks in your hair or something. You know, there's a difference. 
Yeah, exactly. And that actually reminds me, there was a controversy at the Boston, I think it was a Museum of um, Fine Arts in Boston a couple of years ago because they were inviting museum goers to come try a kimono on in front of, I believe it was a Manet painting. Um, and there was a lot of protests about it, but what was really interesting is a lot of Japanese women came and supported what the museum was doing because, again, like you said, they really wanted people to appreciate kimono. Um, and it wasn't something that they wanted to be, you know, this divisive garment. They wanted people to appreciate it and enjoy it like they do because it's this beautiful part of their cultural expression. I mean, I think uh, the issue was, I think it was, you know, that that painted by Moni is, is, is sort of you know, part of that cultural imperialism of the late right. 19th century. And that wasn't really <laughs> perhaps explained or, or I didn't see it myself, but, you know, perhaps that wasn't put across enough by the, by the museum. But what was interesting is that the reason that the museum had that kimono is that that painting went to Japan and the Japanese organizers of the exhibition got a kimono firm in Kyoto to recreate the garment so that visitors to the exhibition in Japan could dress up to know what it was like to be to feel like Madame Monet. Oh, interesting. So, you know, it is always much more complicated than you think. But that, of course, a lot of protesters were Asian Americans who are, you know, feel discriminated against. So that was their point of view, was, was, was different perhaps than from a Japanese woman coming from Japan and wanted to promote their own culture. So it is always about, about context and, and meaning and, and understanding, really. Well, we are nearing the end of our time together, and we've still only addressed two of the exhibition's three sections. We've really focused on kimono during the Edo and the Meiji periods, but also we have the final section which of the exhibition, which is kimono as transformation. And that a part of the exhibit, it feels to me like it really rounds out the global and cultural influences of the kimono into the 20th and 21st centuries, into today. So in closing, what ways does the kimono continue to inform and inspire fashion in Japan and around the world? Well, the, um, as you say, what, what happened after the war in uh, Japan is, you know, Japan obviously completely devastated after the Second World War. People rebuilt their wardrobes. They tended to just wear Western-style clothing. It was easier. And that's where you get that real shift from kimono being an everyday garment into being a codified costume worn on special occasions, you know, like coming of age or when you get married and so on. So we do look at that uh, in the exhibition. We also look at the efforts of the government and individuals to ensure that these kind of techniques don't die out. But I think one reason why we wanted to do the show, as I mentioned right at the beginning when I was talking last week, is that idea of this kimono renaissance that's going on. Kimono these kind of formal garments that are worn on special occasions are very, very expensive in Japan. And fewer and fewer people were wanting to buy them. And for many, they were associated with Japan's kind of past, if you like. But what you've seen in the last 10, 15 years, I've noticed it a lot from going to Japan, is this rediscovery of Japan by younger Japanese who perhaps don't have the associations that their parents or their grandparents had. And what they tended to do was to restyle vintage garments, particularly those wonderful mason things that you get in the 20s that we were talking about a minute ago. Uh, very colourful and still not particularly expensive if you go to a vintage shop in Japan. In some ways, it was it was a um, it wasn't just a discovery of their own heritage. It was a it was a resistance against the ubiquity of Western fast fashion. That you go everywhere and every item of clothing and every shop anywhere you go in the world is identical. It was this idea of sort of individuality and also a little bit about sustainability because you know this idea of restyling and that kimono lasts a long time and can be treasured and restyled and that really inspired a new generation of younger makers, quite a lot of independent studios. And these are particularly the people that we show in the exhibition and it's been such a pleasure uh, to get to know and to meet. 
But certainly also the kimonos continue to inspire Western designers. If you think about people like John Galliano and Alexander McQueen are very much uh, inspired by East Asian uh, clothing styles, whether it's just in, in the form of, of a cut or the drape, but, but very creatively sort of translated. And we also look at sort of collaborations, particularly there's um, uh, in menswear, there's been quite a revival of the wearing of men's kimono recently. And there's a wonderful collaboration, uh, there's um, sort of tea kimono, and it's a collaboration between T. Michael, who's he's actually Ghanaian, but he's based in Bergen in Norway, and he's known for his, his, his good tailoring for menswear. And he's in collaboration with Y and Sons, which is a diffusion line of a big, uh, of Yamato, which is a big uh, sort of kimono producers in Japan. And they're doing this wonderful uh, sort of the idea of they're sort of trying to make, again, sort of elegant kimono styles, a staple of the men's wardrobe. So often you get this sort of combination of sort of something that's like a suit underneath with a wonderful sort of kimono uh, style jacket on top and really very elegant, very, very stylish. Whereas other uh, makers particularly are making kimono that's consciously unisex. So the idea, of course, that anyone, you know, both men and women, wear kimono, this idea of, sort of gender fluidity, if you like, but kimono that can be styled in different ways depending on whether you're a man or a woman. So that's quite an interesting kind of departure that you've seen, we've seen recently as well. So in the last section of the show, whereas in the previous sections we've been quite careful to make people understand what you're looking at now is what's happening in Japan compared to what you're looking at now is what's happening in, in the rest of the world. In the last section of the exhibition, which has been designed like a futuristic garden by our wonderful designer Story Studio, everything is kind of together. So we have this wonderful plinth where we, you know, where you mix kind of the work of something like Tom Brown and his wonderful collection from 2016, which uses sort of Japanese motifs across his suits. And someone like Doro Alowo, who's a sort of Nigerian-based designer based in London. So we we have all these garments together. So that was quite fun deciding how to how to place them and how to make them speak to one another uh, in the display itself. And of course, the many f- Japanese fashion designers too, right? Absolutely, we have we have, of course, we have um, Izumiaki and Rei Kawakuba and Yoji Yamamoto. So Yoji is represented in the exhibition by two garments, quite contrasting. One is actually a kimono, and you don't associate Yoji Yamamoto with kimono production, but he did a special uh, range of kimono for Chiso when they were celebrating their 450th anniversary. They wow. were founded in 1555, and they're <laughs> one of the oldest textile producers in Kyoto, and he made kimono for them and she's so kind of lent us that and then there's a wonderful sort of jacket you know obviously you think of Yoji as being the poet of black I think he's often called this beautiful sort of jacket that's got almost like a sort of um, constructed in sort of European style tailoring with, with um, tails at the back but has this incredibly incredible uh, kimono sleeves so that's you know it's, it's rather interesting to have that those kind of so it's showing that the that kimono influences international designers everywhere in the world including in Japan And this is a conversation that I'm sure is going to continue well into the future. Anna, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your passion for this work, this incredible history and artistry of the kimono that, you know, will continue to define it in Japan and around the world for years to come. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Cassidy. Thank you very much. Cass, this exhibition sounds amazing. I wish we could see it right I now. Know, <laughs> I know. It really is. And so many years of hard work and dedication on, on researching this very topic. So many people involved to bring the story to life. You know, and, and the museum, like so many around the world, is currently closed because of COVID. But this exhibition is slated to run until January of next year. So hopefully some of you will still have a chance to see it. 
And of course, thanks to the power of technology, you can get an insider's look at the exhibition through numerous videos posted to the exhibition website. Check out the link in our show notes. And if you can, try to get your hands on a copy of the exhibition catalog, which is absolutely chock full of beautiful images and and really illuminating texts. Well, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of the kimono in your closet next time you get dressed. If you have any Fashion History Now news that you would like to discuss or if you would like to request a topic for a Fashion History Mystery of the Future, please email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast where you will find additional images accompanying each week's episode. You can follow us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.